When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sophie Toscan de Plantier. She died here among the brambles and the briars, and now the hills call out for justice. People want answers, they want conclusions. They want to be able to lay Sophie to rest. This is the search for justice. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst. I'm really excited today to have Jim Clementi back with me, helping deconstruct what we see in in this episode, actually, in particular, The Murder at the Cottage, the docuseries that's on Sky. It's called The Search for Justice for Sophie. And just to remind you all, Sophie Toscan Duplantier was murdered in 1996 in West Cork. And we've talked a bit about the podcast, West Cork, and there's also a Netflix show as well. But today we're going to really focus much more on the Jim Sheridan docuseries. And for listeners who don't know Jim Sheridan's work, well, he has been nominated personally for six Academy Awards. And we know him much more as a respected filmmaker. Films like Sunday, Bloody Sunday, In the Name of the Father and My Left Foot. He's also got some acting credits too, and he's produced a number of documentaries. But what's interesting in this, and what I'm interested to hear from Jim about, first of all, is just Jim's reaction to the fact that he's front, well, he's in front of the camera. He's actually leading us through this five-part docuseries. So, Jim, what did you think about that? It's just my first question before we get into the detail of the case. Yeah, well, obviously, Jim Sheridan is a respected filmmaker, uh, accomplished filmmaker. And what I saw and how my response was, you know, seeing him sort of walking the B-roll as he spoke, as his narration uh, spoke in, in the beginning of the film, was that he is probably the ultimate storyteller. You know, the kind of guy you want to sit down at a bar and share a few beers with and listen to stories all night. I mean... That's who he is, right? But conducting an actual investigation, he's not a criminal investigator. And, you know, the kinds of things that you and I want to know from witnesses and from suspects are not necessarily the kinds of things that he would ask and not necessarily in the way that we would ask it. And there are, uh, you know, many different things that you'll see there are many different strategies we might take, and it would be based on on each of the interviewees and their personalities and where they were in the story, uh, where they were in the case. So that's something that is very nuanced, and you don't get that from directing a film. I'm sorry. You don't get that from regular, normal life. You get that from the things we did, which is interview hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people over decades, thousands. And that's where you develop those skills. And so anyway, it's, it's okay that he tried, that he did that, but that is not what an investigation is. Yeah. I think they're, they're very valid points, actually. The investigators asking the right questions, particularly when you've got a cold case like this, and I will say that he did have an EP, an executive producer called Donald McIntyre, who a little bit of trivia. I actually did all my first live shows ever on TV with Donald McIntyre. We had a show called Street Crime Live where we were parachuted. Do you remember? I mean, it was a long time ago now. Yeah, but, but was... weren't you on the street in the middle of rough neighborhoods, real crime scenes? Exactly right. We were getting pelted with rocks and bricks at one point. Things got pretty... Uh, 
Yeah, a little bit scary out there for a time. But yes, Street Crime Live was sort of the young person's crime watch, if you will, where we were out on the streets. And so I learned some of the the live aspects of TV, cutting my teeth right out of the crime scenes and, and with Donal. So he is an investigative journalist. But what I would say is also that murder cases and particularly violence against women and girls is a totally different ball game. And I do think that cases like this do need a female lens as well. That would be no surprise for Jim and for my listeners to hear me say that. But this is a violence against women and girls case. Sophie was a, a, a woman. And I think that there is something about having other consultants and experts who are very much uh, involved with this line of work. They do it every day. And I think that that for me was just a little disappointing. And certainly to see, I felt it was a bit Columbo-esque, I have to say, sort of this older white guy leading us through the storytelling part and questioning some of the police officers and others. I thought it was trying to do that kind of Columbo casual approach. But for me, there's nothing casual when you've got a main suspect who is dominating and you need to be able to navigate through the psychology of that. Because right. it, it, it's not just entertainment here, is it, Jim? We've got a beautiful woman who was murdered. The family deserved justice. And like I said before, it's great that they're spotlighting Sophie's case, but it's time, you know, 22 years on that we actually see some kind of resolution because this case is unsolved. And I just felt the main suspect who we will get to ran circles actually around this docu-series and was dominating far too much. Well, it's interesting you say that because in the Netflix series, uh, it was very clear and certainly in the audio series, it was very clear that 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 one person um, used every opportunity to to shade and to twist and to bend things back around to to fit his needs, and uh, I think that was very revealing. But we'll talk about that later. Yeah, I'd really be interested in your views on that. So, episode one, there's five parts to this docu-series. In episode one, well, we talked about some of the things, actually, Jim, that come out in episode one about the victimology, about Sophie, about the fact that she, yes, she was strong-willed, but she actually went there for respite and not to be in the limelight. And what's really helpful, I think, in episode one is that we go to the crime scene itself. And the same in episode two, actually, we actually start to see things I talked last time just about the podcast that you and I, we like to have eyes on things. We like to be there ourselves. There's a a picture can paint a thousand words, but going to a scene paints a million where we can look at decision making and choices and um, certainly crime scene assessment. And we do see some relative locations and ingress and egress and what can be seen from a certain location and what can't be seen, how concealed the body was or how left out in the open it was, things like that, that you can't really tell just from pictures or crime scene video. Absolutely. And we learn that the main suspect, we we have to talk about him, Ian Bailey, we learn that he was notified according to his records and his testimony, but also Eddie Cassidy at about 1.40 on the day that Sophie's body was found. And he was actually at the scene with Jules, his partner, at around 2.20. The guard had put him there. So there's quite a lot of discussion about what Eddie Cassidy actually told him. And he'd said that there had been a murder of a woman, but didn't reveal who it was. And the question is, how did he know whose house to go to? So it's not clear. There is There are some mixed thoughts around that, that perhaps Eddie said it was a foreign lady and he put it together that actually 20 minutes up the road there was the French Sophie and of course there's a question mark about whether he knew her or whether he didn't but well the question yeah, is that's important go on. point because, because he claims he didn't know her he claims she was only pointed out to him and that was it that was the the extent of their interaction so they didn't have any interactions and i think that was brought into question uh, pretty convincingly to me later so we'll we'll deal with that but the fact is that you know he 
he's he's very quick. Uh, he 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 definitely knows how to talk his way around an issue, and he'll always sort of bend it to his own will. No matter what the circumstances are, he will give a justification for everything he says and does. Yes, quick to think on his feet. That's certainly what what we see of him. We know that he took Jules there to take pictures as well. And he's a journalist, so we've got to put that context back in, because otherwise it does sound strange. Right, but he's a journalist, but he spent only a very few minutes there, asked a couple of cursory questions, and left. He didn't stay as long as he possibly could, find out what they were doing, describe what they were doing, look at the scene, whatever, all that stuff. And he went back later. Yes, Garda's statement say that, which they thought his behavior was suspicious right from the start, mm-hmm. which there's a red flag there, isn't there? And we have to pay attention to that, particularly when we know that he was writing prolifically about the case. And it was actually, he was the one that was writing about the wine glasses, about the promiscuity that well, nobody that, else That's a great thing that you brought up, the promiscuity. So he says that there were a number of men that she brought to this cottage. And she, and he says she was having sex with at least one of them. Well, one of the men was her brother. One was a work colleague. One was a guy that she had had an affair with. But what he's doing is he's suggesting with this innuendo that, that she was having sex with many people and that this was a sex cottage and that that that's what she was engaging in which is absolutely unfounded this is how fake news is created by journalists um and by quasi journalists people who call themselves journalists they know a few scant facts and then they come up with theories and they tie those facts to the theories to try to give credibility to the theories that is not that's innuendo that is not a fact and news reporters should not be publishing innuendo and that's all he did but if you look at it laura don't you see the attack that's happening here that he is attacking the victim it's not just victim blaming he's going deeper and attacking her her credibility her morals her whole reason for being there. That attack could be the written metaphor for this crime because this crime was also an attack. This crime, as we talked about last time, this crime was an approach that was fantasy-based that did not go as the offender intended. And because of that, Rage and Anger came out. And this very frenetic, disorganized attack and murder was the result. So when I see one reporter in particular who's literally loving the attention he's getting, and people have described this as rejuvenating his life, and he is on attack mode, not my poor neighbor and who did this? Who came into our town and did this? It's attack her, attack her, attack her. And so, and then, you know, hits and all this other bullshit that there's no support for. So I don't know. That's another red flag to me. If he had absolutely no connection and he was a reporter from out of town and he came in and did that. Okay. I understand. That's a particular way to do things, but they were in the same small town. They lived 20 minutes apart, which is not really far because these are not highways. These are these are little rickety old dirt roads and stuff. It's not um, a metropolitan place. So it just struck me that he was in attack mode and so is the offender. Yes, very interesting. The framing. And the question for me, Jim, as well as what you say, but the question always makes me think back to what happened with Nick Pisa and Amanda Knox, the 
taking off my space, the foxy noxy and running with that when there were no facts. There was no evidence to corroborate that. It was just another man say so. And remember, we deconstructed the case and he talks about the fact that Nick Pisa, when it's put to him, shouldn't you have checked the facts and the evidence? And he said, why would I do that? I just didn't have time. I was getting headline after headline. She was the one that was interesting, not Rudy Guede. And you just see him hang himself, literally. So the the question for me is, is it more of that? Is it somebody who's just desperate for headlines? Or is it someone who is just misogynistic and that's the way he approaches his interactions with women? Or is it something much more sinister that to attack her, to discredit her, to make her seem unworthy. Is that because he's angry because of an interaction that they've had? Exactly what you've just said. So they were the questions in my head. Right. And so just commenting on Foxy Noxy, what I know about that moniker is that it was how she was playing soccer. It wasn't anything about sexual prowess or lack of morals. It was about how she was on the soccer field. And that's how she got that name. And, you know, she actually sort of grew more beautiful as time went on, but she was not known as a, as a beautiful young girl. She was kind of gangly and she was an athlete. And so that's with Amanda Knox, but it's how these quasi journalists, these fake journalists, can use something and create something out of nothing. And unfortunately for Amanda Knox, she lost seven years of her life and so much, so much pain and anxiety and anguish and and trauma. And if this clown, Ian, had any kind of humanity, and I believe, and I'm telling you, Every time I saw him, I saw indications of psychopathy. And if he had any, at all, any empathy for other human beings, he would have known that he's writing this. And it's being read by not only her friends here, but her family back home who who lost a mother and a wife and a sister and a daughter. Brutally brutally and yet there's absolutely no empathy there doesn't that tell you something yes and i'm going to ask you about as we go through the other signs of psychopathy for you because it absolutely does they were my initial markers as well the red flags the questions that you ask is this somebody who under pressure you're seeing one thing and actually will present quite differently elsewhere Because we also have to bear in mind that in Jim Sheridan's docu-series, they do talk about here that on Thursday, the 26th of December, Bailey had written that she had a head injury and there was no sexual assault. Well, the police have never released that. That was not in the media at that time. And so the Garda wanted to know how he knew that. So leakage here, Jim, you know, again, just joining things together. How does he know things? That would have been in the autopsy, which we know, um, or the post-mortem, which we know happened later on because they didn't go out. The doctor didn't go out to the scene. He actually performed it on Christmas Eve, but that was a confidential document, which as far as we're aware, he didn't have sighting of. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, that is is guilty knowledge. Uh, That's all you can say about that. That's guilty knowledge. If, If he... If he said that because he knew it, that's that's a damning red flag right there. I mean, everybody was saying, like, as you said earlier, he was the source of information for many of the articles off off island articles. I mean, people were coming in. He was holding himself out as the person who had the info. And why was that? Did he have the inside info? I mean, that's certainly. It's certainly pretty damning there. In small communities, it is worth saying the community intel, the jungle drums beat and, and people talk, but no one would have known that information who wasn't privy to the post-mortem. No one would have known it for sure, certainly not to print it in a newspaper on Thursday the 26th. So 
that was a big red flag for me. How did he know these printed things? printed it in a newspaper on the 26th. He must have known it on the 25th when the autopsy was going on. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. So that's where we sort of leave episode one. Episode two, we end up being back at the crime scene with Jim Sheridan talking to camera saying, well, you need to see the pictures. He didn't want people to, you know, he wasn't doing it sensationally. I believe he was doing it more for the point of view to say this was a very brutal murder and you really need to see the scene, which you and I both agree for us, that is really critical information. We do need to see the cottage. We need to know where her body was in comparison to that. We know, well, we hear Detective Superintendent Dwyer talk about from the crime scene photos, he says violence was the violence was over the top. And we talked in our, the last time we talked about this case, I mentioned that she was beaten with two. Well, initially he talks about two, one stone and one larger concrete block. And he believes that she was beaten unconscious. And then whoever it was walked 20 feet and picked up the concrete block, the breeze block, and dropped it on her head. Which, again, you know, it seems that, Yes, he says the violence is over the top. Of course, he hasn't worked as many cases as you have, for example, or as many as I have, but it does seem to be a lot. And I'm just going to reference what Nick Foster says later on in the docu-series, which Mm. he was the journalist in France covering the French trial. I can see him talking to camera being, he's quite traumatised. He basically says she was hit 40 to 50 times. And I get a sense that he didn't realise it was that brutal. And he talks about whoever it was who did this really was brutally violent to Sophie and how terrible he felt for her and her family. And he was clearly traumatised by that. So we're not just talking about a few blows. We're not just talking about using one or two weapons. We're talking about someone who then walks 20 feet to pick up another concrete block and as she's lying there, having fought for her life, drops it on her head. 
Right. And the other weapon they believe was probably the small hatchet that was at the back door that they used to chop wood because she had lacerations at the back of her head and neck. And that was consistent with that type of weapon. So three different weapons. Um, generally, uh, somebody, when you're attacking somebody who's unarmed, who's petite, uh, three different weapons and that level of destruction of the human body is overkill. There's no question about it. And when does overkill happen? A lot of times it happens when there is rage and when there is somebody who feels like the person who died, died, did something wrong to them and they are getting back at them basically. And so that's what you see here. Many times in serial killer cases, you'll see this happen when a victim does not play along. In other words, a victim really fights back. A victim almost gets away. Many times that will enrage the offender. And so you might see in one case an extreme amount of violence. But this is not a serial killer type case. This is a case where this happened. It was unplanned and definitely disorganized. But at the same time, it is a crime that shows there is some kind of connection here. In other words, the circumstances, if you look at the totality of circumstances, the time of night it happened, the location, the fact that she had her boots on and her night clothes and she was outside, all that speaks to somebody drawing her out and her not letting the person in. It has nothing to do with somebody who was in the house, who was invited in as a guest. It just, it wouldn't have happened this way. Yeah, so someone local, someone possibly known, someone impulsive who lacks self-control, would you say? Yeah, all those things are are indicated. So they're the things that we start to think about. And yes, the, lots of bruising, which we talked about in the last episode, she really fought back. And we hear her family, her mother, Marguerite, and her father, George, who were absolutely devastated by this. We hear them talk about it and say, you know, she was beautiful, but how her face was so battered. And it's really heartbreaking just hearing her her mother and father talk. And then we hear about the fact that Daniel, her husband, didn't travel to Cork. So he didn't go there after he found out she was killed. And there's a sort of a question mark to him, well, why not? We hear that he did have an alibi, however, as did, we talked about the man that she had the affair with, Bruno Carbone, who was placed overseas at the time at an event. So they're kind of ruled out. And then we hear more about Daniel being mentally not in a good place. We know he was the last person, aside from the killer, to talk to her. And we sort of cut to the Christmas Day swim, which is the annual event where they all go swimming and just caught on camera talking to, I think she was a journalist actually, but she asks Ian Bailey some questions and she notices that he has scratches on his right hand and he's wearing a long black coat and a hat. Um, When asked about those scratches on his hands, because there's some play from Eugene Gilligan one of the crime scene investigators who says that because Sophie fought so much and it was in the briars, the brambles, whoever it was probably would have had scratches. So we hear about these scratches. We hear that he also had a cut on his face. He says that he killed three turkeys and one caught him and caught him on the face. And he also said that he was cutting Christmas trees, which is how he got the scratches on his right hand. What do you make of that, Jim? Well, I mean, yeah, he says that, but as far as the police tried to test that out, they sent somebody up into the same tree to see if they would get these sort of parallel line scratches all over the hand or arms, and they didn't. And so that seems, again, like somebody who's trying to sort of cover. And then when he's asked about uh, when the police come up and they see him the very next day, 
and he's working out in the garden, he has his sleeves rolled up and and they can see not only scratches on the back of his hands, but on going up his to his arms to his elbows. Right. And and he says, well, if I had done this, why would I be wearing my sleeves rolled up? Wouldn't I try to hide them? Well, that just shows you that his thought is, well, that would be hiding them would be an indication of guilt. So I'm going to do the opposite because he is thinking he is planning. He is considering all this, but he has to say that stuff. In other words, he doesn't say with with definitive language, look, I cut the top of a pine tree down as a Christmas tree and I got these scratches there. Period. He said, oh, but why would I if I had done this? He goes beyond that. He's overselling. But also, when you look at those kind of scratches, I've gotten those kind of scratches before. I've worked around sticker bushes and briars and and things like that. And you do get those kinds of parallel scratches from that. From a from a pine tree? No. There's there. No, you don't. Not the parallel lines. I mean, you could get a, a a large abrasion or a skinny abrasion, but but tiny thin scratches are from pointy objects, and parallel lines are from multiple pointy objects that are set apart, and that's what briars are, and so that's what it appeared to be. At least, I don't know why they didn't take pictures of it. That was a, a failing on the part of the police. Um, right. I just don't understand that. They had him in the police department. They were at his house. They could have brought a camera. They should have brought a camera. And it's that's the small town nature of it, I suppose. That's the non-homicide investigation experience of it. But it's unfortunate because that would have been very helpful. Absolutely. So they only had, they actually drew, didn't they? I have seen body maps. I remember in 1996 at New Scotland Yard, we saw, we used body maps a lot. Um, it did take some time before going over to photographing and videoing things, but what a missed opportunity because then we would have been able to see exactly yeah. what those scratches looked like. But I do think the oversell is quite interesting, that point about him saying, well, why would I do this? He's already, it's already a thought. Right. The overcompensating. Why is that necessary? He, he does it all the time. He, he constantly does that. When he's asked, well, do you have a dark, don't you have a long dark coat? And he says, well, the weather here is so blustery. Shouldn't everyone have a dark coat? You know, a heavy dark coat? No, it's not about the heavy coat, the heaviness of it. It's look, somebody was seen with that with a dark coat on. You don't have to tell us why you have one. You have to tell us whether you have one. So in other words, you're justifying it rather than just answering the question. And that is his MO. He does it every time. Every time he's asked a serious question, he does that. He also says, and this was interesting, you know, when Detective Superintendent Dwyer, um, at some point, Ian called him a fucking psychopath, and then which is attacking the accuser, right? And then he said, "I've may I may have been ill-advised by myself to do that, but it was something that I did." Okay, I may have been ill-advised by myself. In other words, he's having an internal argument about whether or not to do that. But he did it anyway. And that's serious impulsivity. Again, that is something that is totally indicated at this crime scene. Impulsivity. So another red flag or box to check there. Yes, the impulsivity is something I, I was looking for across all the footage of him. And I do think that's an interesting point you brought up about him calling the detective a psychopath because... When he originally meets with him, he's got mince pies and coffee, and he clearly right. thinks he's going to and win um, him over. Yeah, persuade him of his opinion. And when that doesn't happen, then the attacks come in, which seems to be something that uh, is fairly patterned behavior. 
Then you right. think when things don't go his way, and I'm looking for those things across every interview, and those you actually see that leakage where we come on to some of the other times where you see these flashes from him. And then he realizes and remembers the cameras on. And then you right. see this image management suddenly kick in. Arto, you, I mean, for me, there are a couple of points, but they come a bit later on. So I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I think that's a very interesting, the discrediting that we're, we've been watching and hearing um, we also hear about Fiona, don't we, in in this episode, which we heard in the Netflix and the the, the podcast too. We heard about the witness. Turns out to be Marie Farrell. But I'm just curious, Jim, what you make about all of that. The fact that she calls in initially and says that she sees a man around about the right time, doesn't name him, and then later calls back and does name Ian Bailey. And of course, there's this whole back and forth and lots of people are very interested in A, why she would do that. B, obviously, it really focuses the the guarder on Ian Bailey. And obviously for him, it plays into the, this is, I was being stitched up, I was being framed. And here's Marie Farrell, who clearly was pressured, coerced, whatever, by the guarder. What what did you make of all of that? So I think Marie was engaged in extramarital behavior. And so it was a risk for her to come forward. But because she had seen someone lurking when Sophie was in her shop and then saw that same someone on the bridge that night or the night of the murder acting crazy, uh, and that bridge, of course, could be where a murder weapon was gotten rid of, so I don't know if that's the closest body of water to where the crime scene was. That's certainly something that I would have looked at uh, right away when a, when a murder weapon is missing from the scene. Um, I, I, I would look at bodies of water and dumpsters, you know, in a, in a metropolitan area. But anyway, she saw that. So the fact that she felt compelled to come forward, despite the fact that she was she was apparently engaged in the extramarital behavior. I don't know what she was doing. Nobody does. But clearly that made it risky for her to come forward. Tells me that the information she has was not just frivolous. In other words, she wasn't just looking for attention. She was actually trying to avoid attention by being anonymous first. And eventually she, she was found out because she actually made one of the calls from her own house. They traced it. And they found out it was her. She didn't come forward voluntarily as herself. So I don't believe that the Garda had coerced her to say stuff or gave her information to say. And later when she recanted, I believe that was after a a series of attacks by Ian that she eventually succumbed to because he threatened to out what she was doing. And so that it got to be too much. And she said something in when somebody confronted her, she said, I'm done with this. No more. I'm not going to do this anymore. And that tells me she's fed up with it rather than no, I want to tell the truth. Finally, I am compelled to tell the truth. Finally, she's not coming from that point of view. She's coming from I'm done with this. I'm out of here. So I'm withdrawing my statement. I didn't see it. So to me, I still believe what she said, you know, in the first three times and, and, and her initial statements and testimony. And I don't, I don't give credibility to her retraction. But all that says is it puts, potentially puts him outside at that time. We do know that he first in, first lied to the cops and said, I was with my wife in bed the entire time. And that's just a total lie. And then he said, well, I did slip out to the studio. Studio, uh, way on the other end of the property, completely private. Nobody would know whether he's there or not. Not an alibi. Not an alibi. So the fact that he felt it necessary to lie to cover up what he was doing is a is another red flag. Yes, that's very interesting, the whole Jules and his discussion and alibi that she says, I would have known if it were him. 
I would know if he had killed someone. He was in bed the whole time. And then he, by his own admission, says that he wasn't and that he was writing. And she sort of backpedals on that and says, but he had written an article and that article hadn't been written before. So he must have written that. Well, you could write an article at any time, right? I mean, I don't know my partner's everything that he writes as a journalist. I don't see it, hear it, read it. He doesn't have to check in with me about the work that he does. And you also, if you're asleep, don't know if the other person is still in bed asleep with you the whole time. I mean, you know, we're not we're not conscious when we're asleep. And so it could very well be that he snuck out and and snuck back in. You know, it's just, well, he says that anyway. he did. I mean, by his own admission, he says that he did get up and that he was writing. He says he was writing in the kitchen and he says that he then went out to the studio later on. But Why? there's a belief that he may well have gone to the studio and that it's unaccounted for time, isn't it? It's not an alibi. Like you say, if your partner's meant to be sleeping next to you and you're asleep, the first thing she know, knew was that he brought her fresh coffee in the morning. What I would also want to know is, was that unusual? You know, mm. would he normally come and, and bring her coffee or was that an anomaly? Right. Was that him saying, uh, okay, uh, I got to prove that I'm home. Oh, if I make her coffee, then when she wakes up and I'm not next to her, I obviously have a reason because I got up and made her coffee. That's what I was doing. Yeah. I mean, with many cases, I think about Ian Huntley and his partner who later came forward and said, well, he'd bleached the house. He'd cleaned everything. He cleaned all the bedding. Had he ever done that before? No, he'd never done anything around the house ever never even put anything in the washing machine. You see, that's why it's really important, isn't it, Jim, that we ask the right questions. It might seem inconsequential to most people. Well, how often did he make you coffee? Because normally if your partner gets you coffee, I mean, particularly now I'm pregnant, Umberto gets me coffee every morning. That's what he does. It's not an anomaly. So is he trying to place himself somewhere? Because we know he's always thinking about these things. He's already thinking about rolling the sleeves up, down, time, date, stamping things. So it's just another red flag that we need to think about. And I was just curious about her. And of course, we'll talk about her some more. But just when you're being coerced and when you are in fear of someone, you well, tend yeah, to do and, and say what they want yeah. you to do and say. Right. And, and we should mention that he did domestically assault her. And I mean, really violently very assaulted her. And a number of people talked about how the fact is that in the months before the murder, he was drinking, he was aggressive towards Jules and the girls. It was a dark time in his life. He, his personality, he always wished to be seen as more than he is. Wow. Okay. So does that mean that he would make a play for somebody he thought he couldn't get? And he fantasized that it was going to go this way and it didn't go that way. And he got really pissed off. I don't know. But one of the things that he did, and this is one of the most telling things because of how he said it and, and the context, was when I think it was 14-year-old Malachi or Malachi yeah. um, uh, Reed said, yeah. he said, you know, the guy gave me a lift, so I... You know, I noticed he was a little drunk, so lowering inhibitions because he was drunk. And I'm sorry that Ian Bailey gave him a lift and Ian was apparently drunk. And Malachi Reed, because he said he was trying to be polite because the guy was giving him a ride. He asked him, how are you doing? How is everything? And he says that Ian said. Everything was fine until I went up there with a rock and bashed her brains in. Now, when he's confronted with this, he said, oh, I was being sarcastic. The kid was actually frightened by this. And this actually reminds me of a case where a young female journalist went missing in Idaho and There was a guy who was sort of an older guy who was sort of, in her mind, sort of in this mentor relationship 
with her. And he made a play for her. And she told him, I just, I see you as like a dad or an uncle, you know, so I love you, but not in that way. And there were videos of him at the Christmas party, just staring daggers at her when somebody's dancing with her. And she goes missing the next day. And months later, he's working with a kid. This is his, this kid's first day on the job with him. And they're throwing bags of, of seed or something. And they're driving back. It's at night. And he pulls off the road and pulls to this desolate area where there's a reservoir. And he says, hmm, I wonder if she's there. I wonder if that's where her body is. And the kid got scared to death. And he said, uh, I need to get home. I mean, it's late and my mother's waiting for me. And that's how scared he was. And that's what this scene reminded me of. This kid was scared, but he was afraid to say something about it because he got into a car with a guy who, who he knows to have been drinking. And he didn't want to get in trouble for that. So this is the kind of thing we always talk about when kids do something or don't say something because they're afraid of getting in trouble. Trouble, this big or huge trouble, is the same to kids. They don't want to get into trouble. And so they'll avoid disclosing horrible things that happened to them because they knew they did something wrong. And that's typically part of the grooming process. So in this case, he said this to a kid, totally unsolicited, had nobody was talking about Sophie. Nobody was talking about her murder. It had nothing to do with that. The question that was asked was, how are you doing? Just a, you know, a general question. And so for him to come out and say that, that, again, like you mentioned earlier, serious leakage, serious leakage. And that's not the only time. It happened a couple more times where he made quasi-confessions or all-out confessions to other people. And it disturbed them. I mean, they did not at all get sarcasm from it. They did not get humor from it at all. And those are the people that experienced it. They were there. And we've all seen, here's the thing. This is the great thing about like destroying that as an actual explanation for what he said. Because we've all seen so many interactions with him, filmed interactions. We've seen how he acts. We see when he's being funny. We see when he's not being funny. We see when he's squirreling around a question and not answering it. We see that. None of those people saw that kind of funny side coming out at that time. He could very well be a charming, witty talker. There's no question about it. He wasn't being charming and witty at the time. He scared this kid. He scared the couple that he said something to. And that that's a real interpretation of what went on, not his later, oh, it's just being sarcastic. Yes, picking up on two of those things. It was, I think, to the count of 11 people who said about these, are they unconscious utterances? I'm not even sure they're, they're unconscious, but it, it to me is leakage and it shows a callous disregard, doesn't it? Or at least being tone deaf. Why would you say that? I mean, what a thing to say, even if you've had a few drinks to a 14-year-old kid who you're giving a lift home to where there's no context of that conversation at all. Right. And some people might say, oh, it's the English that you know, sense of humour. No, it's bloody not, quite frankly. A woman was murdered. His neighbour was brutally Very murdered. Brutal. Hey, lovely listeners, I'm jumping in here to let you know that you'll hear the rest of this fascinating conversation next week. There's a lot to think about with this case. And I just want to add that in the previous episode, we mentioned that Sophie's body was left outside for 13 hours. Well, one of my listeners wrote to me to say that it was actually 28 hours. And so thank you for catching that. Yes, it's even worse. 28 hours her body was left outside in the elements. And just to underline, the time of death could not be determined due to this. I'll talk more about that in my final wrap episode where I'll detail my full analysis. So let me know your thoughts. So I hope you'll join me back in the Intelligence Cell next week with Jim Clementi. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct.
And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood. bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.